seated. Well, the account of the temptation of Jesus is familiar and that many of the gospel stories are familiar, but it is one that can be challenging for us to understand in that if Jesus is God in the flesh, how could he be tempted to sin? And the answer is both simple and complicated, as with many things uh, when it comes to understanding uh, parts of Scripture, there's great mystery. It's simple in the sense that we would explain this through what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus was both God and man, fully God, fully man. And while that is a simple response that is yet very difficult for us to understand, there's great mystery that remains in it. And yet the hypostatic union was essential for God to execute his plan of salvation. That Jesus came as the second Adam to do, or the new Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do is part of our understanding of how all this fits together, how it all works. R.C. Sproul writes, The redemption that Christ accomplished for us was not achieved by his death alone. He not only had to take our punishment for sin, but he also had to achieve righteousness on our behalf. Therefore, his perfect obedience is as necessary to our salvation as his death upon the cross. Here in this experience in the wilderness, that righteousness and obedience are at stake. What he's saying here is that we needed not only our forgiveness or the atonement, the payment of our sins, but we we didn't have any righteousness of our own to then stand before God. We needed Christ's righteousness to be credited or imputed to our account. Just as we can't understand fully how sin began in a sinless heart as Adam's, how we can understand how the imputed righteousness of Christ becomes ours or how our sin is imputed to a sinless Savior, there's also great mystery in this event of the temptation of Christ. Yet the Scriptures tell us Christ was tempted. Satan tempted Jesus. And as a human, Jesus experienced temptation in a real and true fashion as we read for this morning For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. So we, we can't maybe explain it all or understand it all. We get into the weeds some and trying to make sense of it, but it is true that it happened. We can't divide the two natures of Christ. They are indivisible, and yet we can see distinguishing features in the two natures. For example, as a man, Jesus experienced hunger. It says so here in this text. He was weary, uh, he sweat, and he died. All features that God doesn't experience. Jesus was a real and true man and experienced the limitations of humanity. But was the temptation real? Could Jesus have been tempted? Some argue that the temptation of Jesus was real, but Jesus was not able to sin since he was God. If you, again, get into the weeds on this, it, it deals with some philosophical elements of if, you know, how this all would work. Others, like Sproul, say that it is possible for Jesus to sin. He says Jesus had the ability to sin or he would not have truly been human. Moreover, if Jesus had been incapable of sinning, the temptation in the wilderness would have been nothing but a sham. Whatever position you might take on this or any believer takes, the scriptures are clear, though, the temptations were real, and Jesus did not succumb to them. The glory of this event, indeed the glory of the entire life and ministry of Jesus, is that he never sinned. 
He withstood all temptation. He obeyed perfectly as the Lamb of God who would die for our sins. So now His righteousness becomes ours by faith. So looking now at verse 1, we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit further into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Just as with the previous passage where we see that Jesus went to John to be baptized. He went for that purpose. The same thing is happening here. He went for the purpose of being tempted. And we see that the Spirit led him. So there's a divine plan in this. And yet we cannot say that God tempted Jesus. In fact, the text actually says that he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And so Matthew even takes uh, the effort to make sure we understand that the tempting came at the hand of Satan. In verse 2, Matthew tells us the state that Jesus was in, that he was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before the temptation took place. I don't think many people have experienced that kind of uh, uh, experience. I'm sure some people have tried it. Uh, It it seems quite impossible to me. Uh, Physically and emotionally, Jesus was drained by this event. He 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 was famished by doing this. And so this sets the stage for a bit of a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam faced temptation in the garden where he was in the comfort of the garden, surrounded by lush trees that provided unending food. Adam was not alone. He enjoyed the companionship of Eve. And so Adam had what all good Presbyterians love, comfort, food, and fellowship in the garden. And yet he fell into sin, right? And because of his sin, sin then entered the world and death through sin. In contrast, Jesus was not in that, enjoying that comfort. He was in the wilderness. He did not have food. He was fasting and he enjoyed no fellowship with another human. Yet Jesus withstood the temptation of the evil one there in the garden. He never sinned. Another comparison is that we see Satan come against the first Adam questioning the word of God. Did God really say there in the garden? And in contrast, Jesus fights the temptation of Satan by proclaiming and clinging to the word of God. The second Adam was tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. In verse 3, Matthew calls Satan the tempter. There are many names for Satan that we see in Scripture Satan, the devil, the evil one, the accuser, the tempter, there are others as well. But here Satan is coming for the express purpose of tempting or testing Jesus. And he does so by going back to some of the last words that Jesus would have heard, the words from the Father spoken over him at his baptism when the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Satan now comes and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Note by saying if, he's implying that's not true. And it's really the same pattern that he followed in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say you are the Son of God? If you are the Son of God. Not only does he question the Word of God, but he also challenges Jesus as a man. Now, I mentioned there's great mystery in understanding how Jesus as the Son of God, hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, how can he be tempted I think it's also hard to understand how Jesus functioned as a man beyond what we see revealed in Scripture. But I know as long as men have been around, there is an element to our pride. Jesus certainly had no sin, but there is an element of being challenged. Like, you say you're such and such, prove it. That every man has experienced either on the playground or continuing on into adulthood. 
And that's in essence what, this, the, what, what Satan is doing here. So you say this, you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it. And it's an, it's an affront or a test of his pride. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with Jesus turning stones into bread. In fact, we know later that he used uh, his power to feed thousands. So the act of turning stones into bread wasn't sinful, but to bow to Satan's manipulative de- plan, uh, demand here in this moment would have been sinful and would have been unnecessary, as Jesus demonstrates by his response. Jesus need not be insecure about his identity, for the Father had spoken. This is my beloved Son. Jesus need not be insecure about his power, for he was going to speak in the wind and the waves were going to obey his word. And Jesus need not be insecure about his honor, for while he came as a suffering servant and would die, he would be exalted. He would triumph over this very one who was now tempting him to sit at the Father's right hand. And while we know all of these things are true and that they happened, this was still a test to, in his hunger as a man, resist the nourishment and the satisfaction of food, especially after 40 days, in the challenge to his identity to resist the demand to show his credentials, so to speak, to prove he is the Son of God, and in the affront to his pride to humble himself that he might later be exalted. And he passed the test in this way. Jesus responded, it is written. Not that it is written somewhere. This was, this was language to say this is scripture. This is, this is words that any, any of Matthew's readers, primarily a Jewish audience, would have understood. This is Jesus quoting scripture. They would have recognized the words as well. He says, it is written. And he's referring to a passage in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. All the quotes that Jesus refers to are in the book of Deuteronomy. This one is in Deuteronomy 8 where we find the sermon that that Moses preached to the people of Israel after they came through the wilderness and and before they were as they were preparing to enter the, the promised land. And in this section of the sermon, Moses said, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that, by man, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the testing of the faith of the Israelites included trusting God to provide for them. And in the case of manna, it was that daily faith that when they would wake up in the morning and on Fridays twice as much, right, that there would be this food for them on a daily basis. But the, the key of what God is saying to them there in Deuteronomy through Moses is that food is not the end-all, be-all of life. For us, we cannot comprehend what the Israelites experienced nor what Jesus experienced in this moment. I mean, most of us have not experienced chronic hunger. We've all experienced hunger. We say we're dying of hunger and these, these kinds of things. But most of us have never experienced the kind of hunger that uh, the Israelites would have in the wilderness and especially that Jesus experienced here. Going for long periods of time without food is, is not just a, a simple test. It becomes uh, physiological. You, know, you go without food, your, your brain, you start thinking differently, you feel differently. It affects how we then act. But the point of this is, is that whatever, whether it's food or whether it's money or whether it's security or pleasure or possessions, whatever things that we go after in this life, whatever things we often worship in this life, 
they are not what we ultimately need. Food's a great example because it is such a basic need. We know that you can only go so long without food. Yet the response that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy is, if we could paraphrase it, Jesus is saying to Satan, it would be better for me to die with an empty stomach than to give in to your challenge to pride. It would be better for me to die with an empty stomach than to sin, to turn these stones into bread that would satisfy my hunger. Jesus understood that what was eternal mattered more than what was temporal or what was right in front of it. And so the question for us is, what is it that we want to have for ourselves? Maybe it's money. Maybe for you, you have plenty, but it's never enough. And you're tempted to step all over people to protect what you have. You call it frugal or good stewardship, but in your heart, you're simply selfish and think you are somehow ensuring later happiness. Or maybe it's money, but you don't have enough and no amount will ever make you feel secure. You too frame it within the idea of stewardship, but in your heart, you simply don't want to have to trust God later. You want to ensure that you'll somehow be happy through your security and savings. Maybe it's pleasure. You're always dreaming of the next thing, the next toy, the next vacation, the next experience. Can't ever be happy unless you have something to look forward to, something to anticipate. Maybe you even get satisfaction in bragging about these things to others. Maybe it's acceptance, what we call people-pleasing, also known as the fear of man in which your whole life is spent trying to get the praise of others. You want supervisors to praise you, colleagues to envy you, and people of the opposite sex to desire you. Your whole life experience is spent trying to get people to like you because your identity in your own mind is found in what other people think. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Food, money, pleasure, acceptance, power, possessions, whatever. The point that Christ is making is that none of this matters in the end. Only what God has said, every word that comes out of his mouth will matter in the end. And the Lord has spoken in this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so when we come to the end of our lives on this earth, this is what remains. This is what matters. He says on these two things depend all the law and the prophets. We could look at the law in many different ways. We read it in two different fashions this morning, quoting this passage, quoting the Ten Commandments. But when we come to the end of our lives, we realize we haven't measured up, have we? We needed one who would do so for us. And this is what Christ, in part, is accomplishing here in facing this temptation. That by faith in him who was tempted in our place, who withstood that temptation in our place, who obeyed in our place, that his perfect obedience now becomes ours. So the temptation of Jesus is part of the gospel message, part of the gospel story that he endured and obeyed in our place. Verse 5, we see the devil now takes Jesus from the wilderness, it says, to the holy city. Again, Matthew's writing to primarily Jewish readers, and so he uses a lot of language that we read right past. And we know this is Jerusalem, but he uses language that he's, he's trying to conjure up in their minds. This is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah. 
and, and, and he describes that Satan leads him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, there's a lot of interest as to how this happened. Was this a physical transportation? You know, did people on the ground see Satan and, and Jesus flying up to the, 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 the pinnacle in the temple, or was this a vision? Some believe it was one, some believe it was another. Uh, I think that uh, whatever, however this unfolded, it was a true temptation. That's what we need to keep in mind, that what Christ experienced was actual temptation. And this is true for the third temptation as well. The pinnacle of the temple, we're not sure exactly where this was in terms of the physical feature. It could have been up on the portico or it could have been up on one of the turrets that overlooked the courtyard. But the implication here is that wherever it was, it was high enough that if Jesus threw himself down, he would either be seriously injured or die as a result of his fall. And so Satan taunts him with, if you are the son of God, again, throw yourself down for it is written. Now, Satan is not only implying that God's word isn't true, if you are the son of God, but now he begins quoting scripture directly, quoting from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, words that we know are certainly true. And yet what Satan demonstrates here is that scripture can be misused. Scripture can be misunderstood. The promise of God's word is that it will not return void that it is profitable for, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But we must understand that while it is true of all Scripture, it is also true of all of Scripture. And the distinguishing point that I'm trying to make is that we must understand the whole counsel of God. We can't pit verses one against the other. We can't cherry-pick verses out to prove our own agenda or to make our own point. Scripture is its own interpreter. Scripture must interpret Scripture. We are not to use one verse to oppose another, which is exactly what Satan is doing in this case. If you found out that your neighbor was beating his wife, you shouldn't go over to comfort her with Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands. Those words are no less true, but that would be inappropriate and a misuse of that Scripture. I would argue you should take into account Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In fact, I would argue that you should take into account Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Call the police. That's what you do if your neighbor is beating his wife. The point is, is that all scripture has to be taken together. We understand the whole counsel of God, not simply picked out verses that we use as weapons or tools to craft our own agenda. Satan quoted scripture that was true. The angels were more than powerful to do anything to attend to the needs according to what the Father's will was. Yet Satan left out other passages of Scripture. And before I mention the one that Jesus quotes to him, there are other passages that we could take into effect or take into account uh, where God speaks uh, against treating him with insolence. Psalm 19:13, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. We might think of the list, those, those long lists like we see in Romans 1 or 2 Peter 2 with all the descriptions of the people who oppose God, boastful, insolent, those who despise authority. We might think of the accounts of Haman in the book of Esther 
or Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, both of these men who presumed in their pride upon the God of the universe. In this case, Satan ignored all these scripture to take lines from a passage to attempt to manipulate. That's what he was doing. And so Jesus responded again, it is written. Jesus said those words again, which I think is helpful. It's important. Like he's reminding Satan again, this is where I'm going to. And he goes to the one passage that is probably the clearest against what Satan is challenging. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is Deuteronomy 6, 16. Hitting squarely on the heart of the matter that he shows where Satan has gone wrong, that you don't do this. You do not put the Lord your God to the test. He also demonstrates how he overcame this temptation in a way that Adam had not. There in the garden, the devil tempted Adam to defy God, the ultimate of putting God to the test by suggesting what God had said wasn't true. Did God really say, do not eat of the fruit? And he goes on to promise something better to Adam. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And yet where Adam disobeyed his maker, Jesus refuted the challenge, obeying perfectly on our behalf. Then the final act of testing, verse 8, the devil now takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I mentioned that one viewpoint is that this happened through a vision. I think this particular temptation is probably the strongest implication that it was so. Uh, There's not one mountain on the earth from which to see all the kingdoms of the world. So there was some kind of visionary component, even if there was a physical component as well. It's also interesting that the only other two places where this kind of language of one being carried up or set upon a a high mountain, there's only two other places in Scripture where this language is used. One is Ezekiel 40, verse 2, and the other is Revelation 21.10. And both are experiences for these two prophets that were happening in the experience of a vision. Whatever is, is, is taking place, what Satan is putting on display here is not simply an aerial view of the kingdoms, but it says, and all their glory. We might think in this stage of history, those long lists in, in the scriptures of kingdoms where they had you know, the spices and the precious metals and you know, the, the, the figures of livestock and so forth that we can't even comprehend. I mean, this was their, this was their glory. This is what he put on display. Today's age, we might think of technology or healthcare, ease of life, the things that we boast in. But did the kingdoms of the earth belong to Satan in the first place to even offer to give to Jesus? Because that's what he says in verse 9. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan is described in Scripture as having great power over the nations. But he does not own the kingdoms. They do not belong to them, even if they follow in his ways. So what then is the temptation in this instance for Jesus? The temptation is simply that this was a shortcut. Jesus would receive the nations as his inheritance, but he must first endure the cross. And what Satan is offering here is a shortcut, a cross without a crown. Think of as Jesus approached the cross about three years later as he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, that prayer, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It was the Father's will that Jesus submitted to in that critical moment and in this moment as well in the wilderness 
that accomplished what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Without hesitation to Satan's request, Jesus blasts, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We read it in James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus did this three times now and the devil left him. We could probably preach a whole sermon just on that, the notion that we read James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you and think, if I resist him, he'll just go. But Jesus endured him on these three different temptations before the devil fleed. There's a sense of sometimes it's persistent resisting that we need to take upon ourselves. And upon his departure, it says the angels, the very one that Satan suggested would come and minister to the needs of Jesus, the angels came down and they did minister to him after Satan was gone. We don't know how they ministered to him. We're not uh, given that uh, description, but a number have suggested it would certainly have included a meal. Um, We don't know that for sure. But what Jesus did here in the wilderness wasn't just to resist temptation himself. Jesus resisted temptation and obeyed perfectly in our place for you and for me. Where Adam failed, he succeeded. There's also an example here to be noted into how he resisted the devil. He used scripture. He stood on its truthfulness and the assurance that comes from it. This means that he knew it, which sounds a little bit strange because Jesus is the Son of God. How does he not know the Word of God? And yet, in his human form, somehow limited, he, it, we, we know that he grew in wisdom and stature, that he learned the Scriptures. Learning the Scriptures for us can sometimes become an academic end. We can so easily turn it into just learning information. But Scripture is living and active. The very Word of God that is designed to draw us to the author. The Bible is intended for us to know God better and deeper, that we would love and trust Him more. And while academic study is of benefit, it should never be just that. It must be devotional, thoughtful, and reflected upon in faith for the joy of knowing God. So like Jesus, who learned the Scriptures as a man, we must do so if we are to resist the devil. But know this, that resisting Satan is of no benefit if you do not receive what Christ has accomplished in this act of resistance. To resist doing bad is worth about as much as our efforts to try and do good. Neither will add up to our salvation. The reality is is that none of us are righteous. None can earn their way to heaven. What we must do instead by faith is rest upon what Christ has done in our place, his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death, so that the call to anyone who has yet to put their faith in him is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For you who are trusting in Christ alone, let me say this, continue to believe on Jesus as you fight against temptation. To follow Christ in faith means that you will face adversity. You will face trials, testing, yes, even temptation by the one who seeks to devour us. But these things that God sovereignly allows, he also uses to refine us into the image of Christ. In other words, your trials and your temptations are not a waste. 
They are an opportunity for you and for me to confess, to profess, and to rest upon the very word of God. And in doing so, not only does the evil one flee, but we are sanctified by the grace of our God. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, although there's great mystery in this event, 